Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Ladea. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And we are recording in James and Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamplex.com. <laughs> trying to get the promo up front now, because I'm starting to realize I don't even listen to the ends of podcasts anymore, you know? You have oh, to like, really true. front load the advertising. Don't forget yeah. the dot com. Yeah, there's a solid like 15 minutes of every podcast that I, I skip Sponsored through. by Slim Jim. If oh, that would be amazing. Well, then they need to find something else to sponsor now that uh, their wrestling uh, company is right. going through a rough patch. Oh, but yeah. I guess it's a good time to promote the website right now because Boomer and I had way too much free time early winter. And um, I have not had a day without a post for like weeks nice. now. Just constant yeah. reviews going up on the website. It's been beautiful. Which is impressive to me because it is currently Mardi Gras time. I've been seeing all of you socially outside of mm-hmm. this room, um, which doesn't always happen, but we've been to several parades together. Yes. Uh, Brittany came over the other day and we worked on costumes and yeah. watched John Waters movies for inspiration. Yeah. I got very inspired for Mardi Gras and life. Hell yeah. From that. Because we have a John Waters themed walking crew that you can maybe find on Mardi Gras Day in the French Quarter. Roughly five people dressed up as divine, uh, <laughs> but it could be us. Come say hello. I hope it'll be. If there's another crew, I don't know if I'd be like, wow, this is a beautiful thing. Or I'd be like, excuse me. <laughs> Do you expect like a sharks and jets situation where we have to like sing? You think you're a man and I'm so beautiful. I'm prepared for anything. Yeah, okay. I'm ready for that. <laughs> I think y'all have some of the best. Uh, not so much throws, but like hands, like you hand things to oh, people. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I got a, I got a fistful of cockroaches last year, <laughs> and I just like keep finding them in places, and it makes me happy. That's so. awesome. I found more glittery cockroaches in storage the other day. Those are definitely getting handed <laughs> yes, out this year because I don't incredible. need them around. I found more clay poos. Hell oh, yeah, we still fantastic. have a clay poo. Yeah, oh, God, I think it's in the bathroom. That's the best place yeah. to put yeah. it. Do you guys remember less clay poo? <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so Brittany and I watched polyester together the other day for the yes. expo. Yeah, um, I actually like so I want to do a polyester divine this year, and Ooh. I thought I was gonna do the purple outfit drunk mess, but I found a white dress on the internet that's more mm. f- like Francine Fishpaw in her like, but I'm a good Christian woman. Yeah, vibe. So I think I'm gonna do it. Because I feel like I could quote it and I could really feel that. Like <laughs> mentally, you're a you know 1950s housewife stuck mm-hmm. in the 80s and your husband runs a porn theater and doesn't treat you right and you do not like foul odors. Yeah, <laughs> Haven't we all been there, you know? Yeah. yeah. It'd be fun to sniff things around the French Quarter, mm-hmm. just pick them a different And I want to bring some spray. <laughs> yeah. Not the only controversial figure mm-hmm. that we've been watching lately. Uh, James Hahn and I went to see Ralph Bakshi's 1975 classic Coonskin? Hard to say. Hard to say, but I'm just kind of going for it. Yep. Wait, Maybe I softened my voice a little bit just now. We yeah, ordered, you did. Uh, tickets. I think we just said uh, the Wildwood. Yeah, the yes. Wildwood Showing, one. Please. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's a movie with like a slur for a title. Right. Uh, it was kind of wild that Wildwood, or it's called WW Cinema right now. I'm not even sure they have a name. Right. But they programmed a public screening at the Broad of Bakshi's movie Coonskin. Uh, it was presented by a black local artist who. Did a pre-film contextual speech and then a Q&A afterwards, kind of positioning it culturally so it wasn't just like blankly presented to the public. Yeah. But uh, I felt like we had to go just because it was like, when else are you going to see that movie with a crowd or at all? <laughs> right. 
Um, if you're not familiar, Bakshi was a innovative animator in the 60s and 70s. He comes from that kind of underground comic scene, um, the same style as R. Crumb. He even did R. Crumb's uh, Fritz the Cat movie. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those movies, he's he's doing this very innovative like rotoscoping style in some of them. There's also a lot of combination of animation cells on top of still photography and traditional cinematography. I mean, that definitely happens in Coonskin as well. But another thing he does is he plays with stereotypes. And in this case, it's all racial stereotypes. Uh, this movie is a parody of Song of the South. Uh, so instead of Br'er Rabbit, it's Brother Rabbit and Brother Bear and Brother Fox are these like trio of talking animal characters who kill a cop early in the film and then run away to Harlem. And what I found kind of as it was going along was it starts as a Song of the South parody that ties it into both the history of minstrel show iconography and how that relates to all traditional animation, particularly like the Looney Tunes and like early Mickey Mouse kind of stuff, like the kind of white gloves and tap dancing Mm -hmm. style of early animation. And then also this movie was made in the seventies and is basically a black exploitation thriller. So it's kind of tying in this long history of like, racial caricatures in a way that's kind of ironic and aggressive and like in your face, but still super uncomfortable to watch. Um, There are a lot of jokes in it where you're like, I don't know if that joke was supposed to be funny or if that joke was supposed to make me like cringe because it's so unashamedly repurposing these like obvious racial tropes that like were way outdated even by the 70s standards. Um, I don't know. What did y'all think of the experience of watching this movie? It's definitely an experiment visually that like kind of needs to be seen, but it's also uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I thought it was super interesting. I don't know. I feel like I appreciated it a lot more than I thought I would. I think it's like, it is an equal opportunist in terms of uh, like the character caricatures it's presenting. Like, America is kind of personified as this like gigantic Amazonian big titted blonde woman who is just like uh, killing people with a machine gun pussy and like kind of sowing discord between everybody like everybody is yearning for her and she's just like kind of violent and cruel. Um, There was this like really I don't know I thought it was this really interesting heartfelt segment about this poor woman who meets a cockroach and is like trying to kind of form a relationship with it and then he leaves her I don't know it it was like amongst all of the like very abrasive uncomfortable stereotypes I felt like there were these like kind of interesting sentimental moments that I wasn't expecting um and then there were like I think I had the hardest time with the kind of like homophobic yeah, there's like a mafia don with three gay sons who are like gay and trans, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and very um, yeah, over-the-top yeah. caricature in a way that I think was supposed to needle the white liberal audience yeah. watching like, oh, you're okay with this kind of right. minstrelsy, but not but this not other this. kind? Right, yeah. exactly. So I appreciated the transgression. I thought it was really entertaining and interesting. And I think it was coming from an interesting political standpoint. I, I do kind of love films from the seventies for this reason. Like, like we watched um, fight for your life a while back and other political films I've seen from this time are like really pushing the boundaries of what we can even talk about. 
And I do think it was equal opportunity. I mean, the cops are literal pigs. They look like scrotums. They're so they're fucking awful. disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the Italians are over the top mafioso types. You making fun of gays and you couldn't do that nowadays. It just, the political landscape has changed, but I kind of like how in your face talking about race was back then. Yeah. And even like the idea of like bringing back the song of the South iconography to the seventies, like the movie was like 30 years old by the time he made this. So like, by the time we were kids, that was mostly in the Disney vault. Like, we've all heard zippity doodah, but for right. the most part, that movie's been locked away. And even this year, uh, Steamboat Willie, the original Mickey Mouse cartoon, went into the public domain. And people have been kind of, like, hesitant to do anything with it because there's a very thin line before you get sued of, like, what you're allowed to do with yeah. the mouse. And uh, in the sequence Hanna was describing with the cockroach... Um, this woman has a second boyfriend she describes who is a rat and is very much just Mickey Mouse with a long nose. <laughs> um, so I, I like that he had the balls to like go at Disney um, in their most vulnerable places um, in this as well in the 70s, where I feel, feel like people maybe be a little more tender with that stuff now in fear of being sued. But I, I was thinking about it, too, because Splash Mountain is a song of the South. Yeah. And I think recently it got totally revamped. Where I, yeah. I don't know what the theme is now, but it's, I don't want to say, it's not like a whitewashing, but it's just like pushing aside of all this like racial backstory. Yeah. And it's more honest to actually like dredge that stuff up and look at like yeah. how ugly things How were. ugly it is. Yeah. And that, that again, like to me, that's what the seventies, the political turmoil kind of brought about was like, let's honestly talk about how fucked up some of this stuff was. And it seems like now it's more like, let's just put it past us and not even go there. They had an example of that in another very controversial film for this podcast, Us. They have that like uh that scene with the like the Native American carnival and then it's like years later it's turned into a yes, a white yes. wizard. Like a like whitewashing these like kind of structures that were created out of like characters of other people. It was only con- controversial because I think James did not love us. <laughs> Sorry, but even to that similar, that same filmmaker, like us and even Get Out feels like a modern, like political kind of film that you can make and make a lot of money on. This, again, the closest thing I can think of in the past 20 years would be like a bamboozled. Yeah. Yeah. Or like Black Klansman, you know, a little bit, but like really pushing the envelope of like let's dredge up this really painful racial stuff. And then really the only person that I can think of making the, those films is Spike Lee. Yeah, and to that point, there is like a softened version of Bamboozled in theaters right now called American Fiction. Yeah. Yes. It's a movie I liked, but it pulls its punches and softens the satire with this kind of like family drama stuff that distracts from, you know, it dulls the fangs a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's not as like in your face as it bamboozled Co- was. Coonskin is not soft. It, no. It goes pretty hard. Like I did feel uncomfortable for large stretches of it, but. In a, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it was meant to do. What else have y'all been watching? Because that's all the stuff we've been doing together. I don't know <laughs> what you do in your free time. So um, I watched a movie called Possum from 2018 directed by Matthew Holness. It's about a man who is a disgraced puppeteer. Um, Something happens. It's not clear what, um, but he has this 
uh, really horrifying puppet that he he returns to his um, hometown to kind of destroy. And then he's also there to reckon with uh, trauma that he experienced as a child. Um, the puppet is this huge, like, spider puppet called Possum. And it has this, like, human head that kind of looks like his face so he is like trying to he tries to like throw it in the water he tries to leave it in the woods he tries to burn it and it kind of keeps coming back and um he is staying in his old house with his uncle who he uh was raised by because his parents died in a fire um, so the movie is like really grimy and kind of uh, like really dark and depressing. Uh, it's the cinematography is very flat. Like it, it was sh- supposed to be shot like these like public infomercials that the director watched when he was a kid. And it's really like r- kind of like stewing in trauma and repressed like violence and, and memories and I did I did not love it I feel like it's a movie I would have watched in high school like seeking out I don't know it's it's not that fucked up but it is disturbing and I don't know that it really like plumbed anything worthwhile while like kind of like putting you in that in this guy's headspace I think also it probably could have been like a little shorter um, but yeah, it was just, I don't know if y'all have heard of this movie, but it's a real mm-hmm. bummer. It sounded like that, um, Getty's, uh, the evil within movie that we watched with the octopus yeah. puppet. <laughs> yeah. It's, I would say that the evil within is like very entertaining <laughs> okay. in contrast to this movie. All this right. is really like Noted. you're in the English, like the like rotting moors of, um, this like small town in England. Um, so I, you know, I like, and there's some genuinely disturbing sequences that are pretty interesting, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend the film. And then I also watched The Parallax View, which was directed by Alan J. Pakula, who also did All the President's Men. He also directed Sophie's Choice. He did a lot of like, yeah, he did a lot of like political thrillers in the 1970s. And it's about, uh, so there's a senator an independent senator who is running i think he's running for uh, the presidential election and he's assassinated three years later this um investigative journalist played by warren Beatty, is approached by his ex-girlfriend who was present at the time of the assassination and she is convinced that someone is trying to kill her and uh Six of the six of the people that were present at the assassination have died in seemingly like isolated accidents. Um, so he kind of brushes her off, but it turns out that she dies, and the cause of death is like alcoholism, like alcohol and barbiturates. So he starts looking into it, and he is convinced that. There is this corporation called the Parallax Corporation that is um, recruiting like very violent men to pull off these assassinations. Uh, So it really reminded me of like Chinatown and the conversation. One of those 
political thrillers from the 70s where somebody is trying to like ascertain some truth or like become a you know a force of justice in this like overwhelming uh system and like has a lot of dread and like very interesting like isolating structures associated with the corporation there's like a 20 minute brainwashing sequence as he's trying to like become recruited into the corporation to learn about it uh it was it was super interesting um i think i probably prefer the conversation and chinatown but i thought it was i mean i was like totally engaged the whole time Hmm. what's like when you think of 70s political thrillers what's like the big great one that comes to mind immediately i really like the conversation just because like the thing that really compels me is like the feeling of getting like it like reminds me of noirs and that like you have a sense of of justice and it just kind of gets obliterated as you're getting deeper and deeper That's into the Chinatown right uh, exactly too, yeah. like, I, I think I think Chinatown might be my favorite I was thinking of uh, Marathon Man Du- yeah, you seen that? That's a good one. I haven't seen that. Ooh, that's a good one. I was thinking of Blow Up just because of the style, because De Palma is like so over the top. Blowout. Blowout. Sorry, Blow Up is Antonioni. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Blow Out. But again, kind of like we were talking about with Coonskin, like the seventies, especially that like kind of Nixon era. There's a lot of very good political intrigue sort of <laughs> yeah. thrillers. Um, I gotta stop you there. How did you feel about white America and Coonskin being represented by all your faves, John Wayne, Elvis, and Richard Nixon? <laughs> I mean, I, I love it because I find them all fascinating. That gag figures. got a good laugh out of me. Yeah, no, because I, I think that's spot on. Yeah, <laughs> that's so <laughs> that funny. is that is white male America for sure. Yeah, I think Blowout and Chinatown just have like. I think they have the most personality. Yeah. The conversation, I think, like the kind of circling paranoia is is really great. Like that spiral into um like like losing control of who you are and what you're doing for someone and having like your services twisted in a way that that you don't understand. Um, or that you can't control. And I think the parallax view has a little bit less personality and like the actual political intrigue is a little vague which i think is fine it's supposed to be this like kind of all-encompassing corporation without clear motivations other than like maintaining power but it has some like really interesting isolated disturbing sequences that that i really really liked you hooked me with the brainwashing I was like, yeah <laughs> it's that is it's a very because it's like you're experience, experiencing it from his perspective. So it's just like the flat screen showing you the images oh, hell yeah. and the sounds. Yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. So that's what I've been watching. Uh, Brittany, what have you been watching? Um, I did watch a really interesting film. I got it like on DVD at a thrift store years ago, and I haven't gotten around to watching it. It's called Schultz Gets the Blues. It's a German movie. <gasps> about um the, there's this sort of retired lonely guy in germany who's in a polka band and 
one day he's in his like apartment by himself and he's playing with his radio and like Zydeco comes on the radio and he's like, what is this? <laughs> and then he gets his accord, his like accordion. And then he starts to like tap into like Zydeco music. And then, uh, the folks who come to see his polka band don't really like it as uh-huh. much as he does when he's like, Hey, I'm gonna show you this like new style of music that I'm into. And, it just so happens that the um, the polka band is invited to this competition or this like fair in Texas. So um, he goes with them, but then he leaves and gets a boat and just goes around in like the swamps of Louisiana on his boat, um, not knowing a lick of English, uh, just because of his like passion for Zydeco music. Oh ah, yeah. And um, he stops at these like little houses along the bayou and um, people invite him in to like have boiled crabs <gasps> and stuff like that. It's There's not a whole lot going on other than like literally what I just said, but it's so sweet Aww, that's um, to watch this like chunky little old German man find something he's passionate about and sort of fulfill his little dream that he Aww. made. Uh, yeah, it's very sweet. Do you listen to Zydeco in your like personal time? Is that something you ever like throw on your car radio? Um, sometimes if I'm at my apartment, I'll put it on um, KLRZ. Oh yeah, that's yeah. yeah. But like, I don't really have any like Zydeco albums or anything like that. I've always struggled with that genre. I like, like Swamp Pop. I've, I've <laughs> always thought of Swamp Pop as being kind of corny, just from like walking around Decatur Street and you just hear it coming out of every souvenir shop that all has the same junk yeah. in it. And, like, I never actually sat down and, like, really listened to it until I saw that um, Les Blank documentary last year. Like, oh, yeah. I went to the dance. I was like, oh, now I get it. Like, it, like mm-hmm. it, it explained it to me in an hour. It reminds all the old people in my family, like, that's what they would do is, like, get up, put it on KLRZ, and listen to, like, Swamp Pop and, like, Zydeco all day. And then, like, do some talk radio. Yeah. And then go to bed. It all sounds <laughs> the same and it all sounds pretty good. Yeah, I get it to now. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't like Swamp Pop is like 1950s with a little twang to it. I get it now. Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. I get it. I get it. Swamp Pop and Zydeco are so different, but similar in a weird way. Yeah. yeah. I guess I was picturing more the more modern style where it's a little like um, the production's so clean and like it sounds... A little Amanda Shawy. Gross. Really no, I don't like it. that. Yeah. I like an old papa with his accordion. Right, right, right. All you know, gritty and dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was a very, uh, very cute, cute movie, and I liked it. Yeah, highly recommended. You know, that does kind of remind me of my my aunt when we went to visit her in Finland. She the two like cultural touchstones she had for yeah. the United States were lifetime christmas movie like the hallmark movies Mm. she was like really fascinated and kind of disturbed by them and then (laughs) country music yeah and then she she like put on some country music for us and it was just like it was not like it was like modern pop country kind of that i had never heard before (laughs) She, she just had like a cd that was like Taught, like 20 country hits and right. she was yeah that was like all she knew about she's like every american States. gets up and pops on this same right. collection every morning right <laughs> right yeah, yeah of course that's what we put on yeah but i i love that like i don't know that co- cross-cultural pollination yeah like oh this thing appeals to me for some reason like this one niche thing yeah and it definitely has a relationship with polka 
It does. Too, you know, so it's like, oh, I yeah. see this thing. That's and very, uh, I get it. Karismaki as well. The way he right. like, had yeah, this totally. Americana his, bands. Right. He loves his like rockabilly yeah. music stuff. Oh, I also watched this other movie too called Queen Pins with Kristen Bale. Oh, is that where she she's like in a group with th- two other women? She's a um a coupon queen. Oh, okay. It was based on a true story about this woman who's like this ex-Olympian, but she was like an Olympian for power walking and she sort of has this very suburban life with a husband that doesn't like give her a lot of attention and she becomes obsessed with like couponing and her stockpile and she writes a complaint letter to I can't remember like a I can't remember the, like a company like a Johnson and Johnson type company and then they send her a coupon for a free product and then she gets this like idea of they have to have a ton of these somewhere mm-hmm. and then she figures out that there is like a coupon warehouse in Mexico that prints these coupons out for free items develops a scheme with her neighbor to go to Mexico and pay someone that works at this coupon warehouse to like give them a couple of boxes of coupons for free shit. And then they develop like a website where they're like, I will sell you coupons for like free toilet paper, like 20 coupons for free 36 rolls of toilet paper for half price, like I'll mm-hmm. for 40 bucks. And then they make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, and they like give a cut to the guy at the coupon factory that's nice. stealing it for them. And then the like FBI gets involved. Oh, um, that's a good hustle. Yeah, that's the kind yeah. of crime I can get behind. I would do that. America is deeply unwell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're in a poor state right now. <laughs> I, I would I want those coupons. Yeah. Um it wasn't like from the angle of like it being a good movie. It was okay. It felt like one of those like made for TV movies that you put on a Sunday to pass the time, but it was a little entertaining. Nice. <laughs> and if you're into like, I rem- what was that show like? It was like a, a TLC coupon. Extreme clipper. couponing. Extreme couponing. So <laughs> yeah. if any part of you found that interesting. Do you like cut them out while you're on a mountain bike or something? Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just the no. deals, oh, man. Okay. They dumpster dive for them and they layer them on. But I don't know where you can't do it like that anymore because like now it's so different where you can print them online and like a lot of grocery stores don't allow you to like give three coupons for a dollar off of a product at once and then stack. Like there's no no more coupon stacking. (laughs) So you can't really do it at that level that I'm aware of. Punch drunk love. There's no schemes to be had with uh Finding loopholes in the coupon <laughs> yeah. rules. Lupons. Yeah. A little a little polka, Zydeco, and coupons. That's been my nice. life. Yeah. That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, so James, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I guess everybody's talking about two movies, so I'll talk about two movies real quick. The first one, I know on the last episode I talked about Heaven Knows What, the Softy Brothers movie about the heroin addict that they found in New York and structured a movie around her. Um, They did a documentary also called Lenny Cook. This kid was higher ranked than LeBron James in high school. Like Mm. he was the number one high school player in the country above like Amari Stoudemire. Uh, Players have now went on into the NBA and the documentary starts. The first like hour is 
essentially like kind of like an ESPN 30 for 30, you know, pretty straightforward is following this kid as he goes to basketball camps. And he's, you see like a young 17 year old LeBron James and him playing and cutting up and he's really, really talented. But when you're at that level, you got to have that extra little something that puts you over um, from being just great to being in the NBA. And throughout the course of the first hour, you can tell he doesn't quite have the like structure around him. He doesn't have like a team of people in the way that LeBron did. He, you know, shows up late for practice. He wants to hang out with his friends, but he's still like extremely talented. And then the NBA draft happens. He's kind of putting all of his, you know, eggs in one basket. He does not get drafted. It's very heartbreaking. And then the movie cuts to like 10 years later. They're still following him. At this point, he's a father. He has played in like European leagues a little bit, but he's kind of stopped playing. He's like almost 30. And the last like 30 minutes of this documentary is fucking devastating. It like wrecked me because you could tell all he cared about was basketball. He didn't do anything wrong necessarily. He just didn't quite have that edge to make it to the elite level. And now he's like kind of working job to job. And one of the final scenes he's at like his birthday party, he's getting drunk, dancing for his girlfriend. He could tell she's just sort of disappointed because he isn't quite stepping up. And just like a great documentary about lost dreams, hoop dreams, if you will. Right. And I was going to say, I think <laughs> for my next pick, I'll probably do basketball documentaries because I'm a huge basketball fan. And uh, I don't know if y'all have seen Hoop Dreams. This is very similar to that. Um, maybe not as epic in scope, but uh, yeah, it, it was just so fascinating. The, it's like this handheld, very intimate stuff in the first hour. And when it shifts to the tragic stuff in the last 30 minutes, it is very much a softy brothers production. And it's like pretty heartbreaking seeing him go. And like, he runs into, um, I think it's Carmelo Anthony, a guy he was in NBA camp with 10 years ago. And Carmelo's like, yeah, you know, this guy was really good back in the day. And now he's just kind of overweight and not really doing much with, and it's just, whew. As a huge basketball fan, like it was a heartbreaking watch. It sucks how many things in life you either are like the top one or like yes. half percent yeah. at, and otherwise, like you're nothing to everyone. And like all of the outside influences besides your own enjoyment are telling you you're wasting your time and should be instead productive, right? Uh, domestically or financially. And like you pursuing your passion at something that you're like, pretty good at but not the best is like um kind of a vice you know yeah Yeah. like that is such a heartbreaking fact of like adulthood they and they talk about that a lot they talk about that in like when he goes to basketball camp the guy's telling him like look you guys are the top one percent of basketball players on the planet but only like 20 of you are actually going to make it to that level and it doesn't really have much to do with skill it's like do you show up to practice do you work hard keep your head on your shoulders. And there's so many kids like that, that have what it takes to just have that little thing that keeps them from getting to that next level. 
And in this situation, he decided to not go to college. He put all his stuff into like getting drafted out of high school and it just didn't happen. And he had nothing to fall back on. And it's just like, whew. Oh, God. (laughs) So. And I feel like there is another world where it's like, that's a part, he does get drafted and that's a part of his origin story. It's like, you know, I dropped out of high school, like, but I was drafted by the NBA NBA, and now I'm like, I have millions of dollars. And it just happened that that wasn't the case. And then it's like a huge liability not to have like a high school education and go to college. Like, like there are other ways to use basketball in, like you could go to college and play college ball or like be a coach, but it's like, like people kind of pressuring you to pursue the chance to be the 1% can cut you off from any other way of using those gifts like going forward. Well, Mm. to, you know, People in this documentary do tell him you should go to college. Do not yeah. assume you're going to make it. You're like, I'm the number one in the country. Like, I'm, yeah. I, I beat LeBron James in a one-on-one thing. It's like, yeah, but you got to be smart about it, man. Like, but Always anyway. have a plan B. Which is does sort of tie into the other movie I want to talk about very briefly because that's like a butterfly effect kind of decision, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, we rewatched. Oh, man. I was thinking about butterfly effect for like a week. I don't know why. Do you know the Ashton Kutcher movie? Yeah. The- Cooch? Isn't Cooch? he, isn't he like Cooch? a detective in this movie or something? No, no, he's just a dude. He's just he's a, a dude. He's a psychology major. Oh. He yeah. had a really bad upbringing. He's and a bad actor. He basically is going back through his diaries to try and change stuff to get oh. a better outcome and everything he does kind of has like an ill intended effect so yeah i made hana like sit down like we gotta watch butterfly (laughs) because i remember owning it and like i think when it came out i was in maybe like ninth or tenth grade and thinking like this is edgy (laughs) cool stuff and it is so dated i remember it being a hit with like people in school where they're like did you go watch the butterfly effect have you seen the butterfly hit with 12 year olds everywhere (laughs) right it's like have you seen the butterfly fight it's fucked up and like what does hold up in this movie is it is fucked up like yeah it's really it touches on what child abuse um animal cruelty animal cruelty prison rape and at some point he tries to stop this like mail uh, box bomb from going off and then it cuts to the future and he's lost all of his limbs uh and the director's cut ending which i have to talk about because i remember owning it on dvd and you know the original ending is like pretty dark but you know it, it ha- it's like a nice tidy sort of ending i guess you could say it's like a bittersweet bittersweet yeah Yeah. but the director's cut is him as a baby inside of the womb uh hanging himself with his own umbilical cord wow yeah and i remember that and we watched that ending and it still holds up as one of the most what the fuck that's great it's the better it's the better it's the better ending because the whole movie is dark and it's like nothing you can do can't you can't avoid your fate and 
ultimately the movie says by the end of it, just like, you might as well just kill yourself. It's like, right. fuck. That. You're <laughs> the origin of all of this unhappiness. It's so late 90s, early 2000s, like try hard, edgy stuff from the aesthetic of it to the subject matter. But, uh, you know, I I had a blast with it. Um, if you haven't seen it in a while, you should I've revisit never seen it. it. It's oh, audacious. Really? This was reminding me of like last year when I was taking a bus to go see the Mothman prophecies. Yeah. They were playing at the broad. <laughs> right. And on the way there, I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> okay. That came, Mothman prophecies and butterfly effect came out like within the same couple of years. I think right? so, yeah, I think yeah. so. Cause totally. I remember getting that confused with people when they were like talking about the butterfly effect. And I remember being like, are you talking about the Mothman prophecies? I don't know what you're talking about. Winged, uh, spiritual or Ashton Kutcher with the swoopy hair. Yeah. Right. Wow. This is bringing back a lot of memories. Rewatch, rewatch it. It's a fucked up movie. It's truly they cover everything. Also, wow. so there are actually four endings, but three of them. <laughs> what? Yeah, but three of them are like mild, like permutations of the main ending. So the main ending, he like tells her he travels back in time to when they first meet, and he's like, "I hate you, and if you get near me, I'm gonna kill you." It's like this woman that he ends up loving, so she like never likes him, and she goes to live with her mom instead of her dad, and like that has better outcomes for everybody, but he never gets to meet her uh, or know her so the first ending is they like pass on a street and they like just kind of pass each other and they look at each other and then they like keep going the second ending is they like meet and talk and go off to go get lunch together or something the second the third ending is like ambiguous like he turns around and follows her and then the fourth ending he hangs himself in the womb you know it's Dude. so and everyone reading, gets up and cheers <laughs> right reading all four of those endings in sequence is just very funny it's a shame that in order to watch that kind of thing now like okay maybe you had the extended dvd in the early 2000s yeah. and i still pick stuff up like that from thrift stores like yeah. if i had seen it before mm-hmm. but now if like you wanted to watch all those endings you have to find some fuzzy rip on youtube right. or just yeah. imagine them after you're reading Which the Wikipedia synopses. I'll yeah. put the intention out there when I go to the thrift store next time. I swear to God, I manifest it at the thrift <laughs> store. Like movies that I'm like, God, it'd be so cool if I found this like very rare yeah. DVD. And I'm like, holy shit, it's there. I'll do that for the butterfly yeah. effect. You could say that your mind has a butterfly effect on the universe. <laughs> oh my God. What if you don't buy it when you see it? Then what will happen? I guess I'll hang myself in the that, No. <laughs> don't that's, do that. That's been like a, a, a party topic lately for me after i've seen the movies like so what was your butterfly effect yeah moment you know that one decision that impacted the rest of your life yeah good stuff the movie this is the last thing i'll say about it it's really funny too because it i feel like the changes that happen like are completely like personality is like nurture based because Mm. like there are these uh ashton kutcher and this girl and her brother and their friend, they're like these kind of like sallow punks when they're growing up. And then he like enacts one change in their life. And then it like, like every time he makes a change, it fast forwards to this point in the new future. And he's like a sorority, like a frat guy. And this girl is like a sorority girl. Like she's a completely different person. And it doesn't, it's like, it's very like Brennan Fraser 
bedazzled or whatever. Right. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. I don't it, know. It, it really doesn't make any sense. The philosophy is, yeah, the whole thing doesn't make no. much sense, but it's, it's a wild ride. It is audacious. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, Brandon, what have you been watching? Man? Well, I mean, what I should do is rush through something because we're going long. But uh, this episode is about excess, so <laughs> right. I'll, I'll double down too. I'll do I'll do two movies. Uh, last night I watched one that I'll bring up just because I think James would appreciate it. Uh, it's this Iranian film called Fish and Cat from 2013. Hmm. It sets these like genre expectations at the beginning and then completely derails itself. So like. It's a digitally shot film, um, and it opens with this like Texas Chainsaw Massacre style news item from the '90s, where it's like, in 1998, there was this restaurant in rural Iran that was caught selling human meat instead of cattle, hmm. and like then we cut to these two dirty men outside this restaurant that immediately the characters mentioned smells like rancid meat, and they're in these like dirty aprons um and these teenagers take a wrong turn down the road and uh wind up at this restaurant and these men are like trying to steal their licenses and hold them there while they decide whether or not they're going to butcher these kids they're like okay i'm watching a slasher like i know what a slasher is and this is how it starts but the more it draws out you realize actually this is a slow cinema piece and there's hmm. these very long dwelling on these like empty spaces between the dialogue and then you realize this shot hasn't broken yet. Like it's all a one shot movie too. So there's like all these kind of like pilings on of different genres. And eventually it does make itself clear that it has its own gimmick that it's going for. It just takes a while to like find it. Basically what happens is we wander away from this conversation with these teens and this, and these cannibals into the woods. The cannibals walk away with this bloody sack that we don't know what's in it, but you could presume it's human remains. And they're going to do something mysteri- mysterious with it in the woods. And this is all one shot. We're following them while they talk about ghosts and things. And then the camera kind of pans to the side. And there are these other characters in the woods having a separate conversation. And we start following them for a while. And it loops back in on itself. So then you realize that these events are not linear. And basically the woods have this kind of like liminal space thing going on where events can kind of just come and go. Sometimes they're out of order. Uh, You'll see the same characters repeat a conversation a second time as it loops around. And it's just this kind of like meandering slow cinema experimental theater kind of pretending to be a slasher to get audiences hooked to watch it. Cool. Damn. Uh, There's these kids hanging out by the water who are going to participate in a kite flying festival by kids. I mean, uh, college kids, like they have like a campsite and they're going to fly kites. And, uh, that's their reason for being in the woods. Uh, the cannibals obviously have their own reasons to be in the woods and, uh, they kind of just exist alongside of each other. A lot of violence is implied in narration. There's multiple narrators. Um, none of it is on screen because it's a very cheaply made movie. So if you go in like looking for like a bloody catharsis uh, and like a traditional horror payoff, it will test your patience. Uh, but it's like over two hours and a strange experiment in form. Um, I would liken it to stuff like uh, Primer or Coherence or you know the kind of movies that like trick you into going to film school. You're like, oh, I want to make movies now. You know, like it's it's crazy <laughs> what you can do with just a camera and a few people. Um, and it was just an interesting movie I'd never heard of before. That yesterday. sounds awesome, dude. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd like it. I'm going to watch that 
very soon. Um, I, I'm going to also mention a movie that everyone's heard of before called Joe's Apartment from 1996. Oh, <laughs> I, I brought. I think I brought that up recently. Okay, I wanted to see this movie when it came out. It was MTV's first movie, so it was like highly advertised. Yes, and I like begged my parents to go see it. I, I think we were about ten when it came out, and my parents said I was too young to watch it. Um, in retrospect, I was the exact right age to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't want to watch a cockroach musical, and I get that. <laughs> I don't, you know. It, it makes sense. Um, but I found this um, at a thrift store recently and bought the DVD. I finally fulfilled my life stream of watching Joe's Apartment, and I really, really liked it. It's a very good yeah. movie. It is. I think I, yeah, I talked about it on the podcast where like I watched it with a friend of mine. We're like, this is good, right? Yeah. We're enjoying ourselves. It had me in a chokehold, too, because it came out when I was, like, younger, and I remember being like, I want to see this. And it wasn't, like, rated R, like, PG-13. PG-13, yeah. And I remember, like, all the moms were like, don't let your kid watch that. There's curse words, and there's, like, all kinds of stuff, and it's not what you think. It's not cute. And my mom's like, yeah, I'm not bringing you to see that. And I was so pissed. It's so harmless. It's basically like minions for stoners. Like, the, this is like roaches making funny, high-pitched voices yeah. and, like, having goof arounds. I was, I was like... On the fence, whether or not I thought it was like low key, kind of brilliant, until there's a roach that's like from Texas, and he's like, "quote unquote" their cousin roach from Texas, and he like lassos a house cat and rides it around saying "yeehaw." I'm like, this movie's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> uh, but Jerry O'Connell plays this like country bumpkin who arrives in New York City and gets mugged three times before he leaves the Greyhound right. station. I love how grimy New York is in this movie. <laughs> it's very Bo's Afraid coded. Uh, just yeah. constant hyper-violence all over the place. And the guy who made it made a short film called Joe's Apartment for Liquid Television, which was MTV's experimental animation show. And this is um, an animator doing live action in this movie. So even though most of it is real people interacting the camera is really over the top at all times uh when he gets mugged uh the camera takes on the first person point of view of the fist hitting his face over and over again (laughs) um and it's just it just constantly goes at 100 miles per hour like that uh the cockroaches i expected to be all cgi Mm -hmm. singing dancing cute little bugs but instead it's a mix of like stop motion and puppets and just like a really like multimedia approach where it could have been a lazy singing cockroach movie, but instead it's like a little grimy work of art uh, with very goofy sense of humor. Also has a great Busby Berkeley sequence where the roaches um, do synchronized dancing from that top view of the oh, stage yeah. show and they're all going in circles, moving their little legs side to side. Mm. <laughs> uh, so it was also on my mind when we watched the main topic of today's conversation. Right. Which is my exit strategy for getting to the <laughs> meat and potatoes of this episode. Uh, we are going to be talking about Ken Russell, the madman himself, the mad lad Ken Russell. Um, unfortunately, no longer with us, but in no. our hearts every day. Always. Yeah. I love this director. I'm very excited to talk about these movies. Um, yeah, why am I wasting time? All that's coming up to you right, right now. now. So the kid has stepped into the star's shoes. Gosh, Rita, I'm sorry. Does it hurt? Hurt? Of course it hurts. When someone else takes your place. But I could never hope to be another Rita Monroe. No one could, dear, ever. But you might just get by. Hmm. One day. (laughs) Now you're just a... 
A nervous, skinny kid overwhelmed at the impossibility of trying to save the show. And on top of that, you have to face the bitter disappointment of all my fans out there who scrimped and saved their pennies week after week to come here this afternoon to see that special kind of magic that only their Rita can give them. For, um, you know, for me being a movie, a movie gal, I don't seek out works by director as often as I probably should. Um, except for like John Waters, like throw any John Waters movie on, I'm down. If he makes another movie, I'm going to watch it. The only other director I've really felt that with is Ken Russell. Mainly because it almost reminds me like if John Waters had like more funding for some of his films. It's on that same wavelength. Of, it's like, insane how much money Ken Russell had to make these movies. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Um, so Ken Russell has a very specific style. Um, his films go from being like biographical pics that are sort of layers of batshit insanity and facts blended together in a fever dream to a little bit of sci-fi to uh, musical numbers <laughs> that he's this this guy like celebrates everything in excess and makes any topic so flamboyant that all his films just feel like big drag queens to me and i fucking love that so he started his career doing work for like the bbc a lot of like bbc films and then he like slowly progressed into movie madness as time went by. And his big film, I think, that everyone kind of remembers him from is The Devils, which is this insanely controversial film from 1971, um, to then be followed by the film that I'm going to bring up today, which is something that is a complete opposite, came out the same year. And that's called The Boyfriend. It's sort of this celebration of 1920s musicals. And it's an adaptation of an actual musical. Sort of. Kind of, right. Yeah. Um, but there is a musical called The Boyfriend. And that's actually um, sort of what kicked off Julie Andrews' career in uh, the U.S. on stage. That's kind of like she his uh, biography is about famous composers they're like mm -hmm. sort of biopics yeah. and then yeah it's like famous composers and artists like he finds these like very interesting you know figures yeah and it's like what's real and what isn't yeah as you're watching we're like well that was like a feverish like excuse to just use this person's likeness to do whatever you wanted and then you read the wikipedia synopsis of the person's life and you're like oh actually hit every point yeah <laughs> it, it's more about like embodying the spirit yeah yes. yeah absolutely and i totally forgot about this but like maybe months ago we watched um the pandora's box music video for um it's all coming back to me now oh, hell yeah mm -hmm. that was directed by ken russell too. that makes so oh. much sense so he dabbled a little bit into music videos not a ton i think he did like elton john's nikita which is also batshit um and that one which was very very ken russell a little little sexy a little excessive and um heartfelt so the boyfriend I watched like more recently and this to me screams Ken Russell because there's there's so much vibrancy in all of his movies and this is like that on steroids. Um 
So like I was saying, this came out after the devils and this was sort of him being like, and I think he even said something along the lines of like, I just wanted to prove that like, I'm not that deranged and I could do like a cutesy <laughs> musical too. I yeah. have appreciation for this. And this is like the most beautiful movie I've ever seen in my life. Visually. I'm a musical person. I'm not like a musical in the sense of like, I s- seek them out, but I enjoy them whenever mm-hmm. I get to see them. Um, but this almost feels like it's both a, like an homage to musicals and also making fun of them yeah. at the same time. So I think like if you are like a musical hater, you'll find some some joy in watching this. And if you're a musical lover, you'll find joy in watching this too. Um, what's cool about this film is it stars Twiggy. So she's sort of like this was this like it girl model known for being like insanely thin with these like big goo goo eyes very wafy but she if i'm not mistaken she like sort of was doing retirement a little bit from being this like it girl model and getting into acting so twiggy plays polly who is sort of this main character in the film who's a stage manager um, for this small playhouse in the outskirts of London. And they're putting on a production of The Boyfriend. And the main actress breaks her leg. So she has to sort of fill that role. And this is so fucking confusing. Because there's like a lot of in and out of. Is this part of the fucking musical play? Is this a backstage moment? Well, that's, yeah, that's the genius of it is like, we're watching a very yeah. poorly staged version mm-hmm. of this musical, like a laughably a, a matinee, bad yeah. matinee like showing 10 people. of it. But it's so extravagant. Well, yeah. And then characters kind of fantasize, well, if we had a budget, right. what yeah. would this look like? And then Ken Russell just like torches money on the screen. <laughs> like just right. the most elaborate stage designs you've seen since the 1930s uh, major studio musicals he's kind of doing homage to. Yeah. And honestly, like the confusion excited me um, and it made me more interested in what was going on because I'm like, I don't get what's going on, but I love it. So I guess I'll, you know, just kind of stop giving a shit about the plot and just fully dive into it and enjoy it for what it is, which is this beautiful hot mess of a movie but what I love about like these like beautiful elaborate set designs and these fucking bizarre views, like you're backstage, you're from you're looking down on the stage from all these fucking little corners. It's it goes from like arts and crafts to just like something that looks like it costs like two hundred thousand dollars to mm-hmm. create, and it's like like in a second it'll switch. Um, so yeah, like I, I don't know. I picked this because I think it just embodies like the visual, um, aesthetic of Ken Russell that I like love so much. And this is present in every other movie that we're going to talk about today. So yeah. What did y'all think about the boyfriend? What are y'all thoughts on Ken Russell? Yeah, I think, so I think every Ken Russell film I've ever watched, I've watched because of somebody in this room. (laughs) I think the first movie by him I ever saw was Altered States and mm-hmm. James, me and James watched Jeez. it together. And I think ja- I think James had already seen it and he was like, you need to watch this movie. So this has been a completely like swamp flicked director. So like watching Salome's Last Dance, mm-hmm. watching The Music Lovers and then watching 
another film that we're wa- we're going to talk about today, Listomania. Like, I think that all of those films really made me appreciate The Boyfriend a lot more because I it, like Salome's Last Dance has that like play within a movie structure, yeah. and then. Like, I feel like Listomania and the music lovers are, you know, they're both these, like, biopics of composers or musicians. Like, he really, like, combines love of art and, like, theater and Mm -hmm. music uh, with these, like, really lurid visuals in a way that's just, like, I, I mean, this movie just felt like he was very joyfully creating something. It's definitely like the sweetest of his films. There's like I think. a let's put on a show quality. Yeah, like, let's entertain yeah. the masses. Right. Uh, with the scrappy little budget we have, mm-hmm. wink, and yeah. then like uh, every now and then it's like, well, here's a million dollars in ten seconds. Right. And he's such a big pervert that this like movie is so like genuine and yeah charming. Right. That I'm like, hmm. Yeah. There's there a little, are... probably a little something in the background. Yeah. It has like the that. least sex the fewest (laughs) like cocks and and uh you know of of anything but there's still there's still a little bit sprinkled in i feel like if i watch it again with that eye there's probably like little like wieners as easter eggs right there's the the guy having an affair like you (laughs) know with that woman i would say the illicit quality is just the fact that it's like hippie culture yeah so like twiggy is this kind of like druggy lead for your you know wholesome throwback to old school musicals yeah. which were also drugged out in their own way yeah uh, yeah berkeley movies and they have that kind of like orgy scene yeah too with um i think that th- there were parts of the movie that were hard for me to watch because it is like intentionally a, a bad it's musical bad. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that is that is completely the point but it's really hard to listen to bad musical numbers sometimes but I like I love Twiggy. I thought she was so like charming in this movie. Mm-hmm. And like there are a few breaks in particular that are like breathtakingly stunning. Like there's a sequence uh where th- there's a record skipping Ugh. um in the production and then it like zooms into this like huge lacquered record and people are like waltzing on it and that's it's, the big busby berkeley number where like they like go through yeah. the legs Dancing. and like yeah there's a lot of like psychedelic um kaleidoscopic yeah. use of people's legs and limbs yeah, yeah yeah they're like there's like a turntable so two records and people are doing that like like the yeah the choreographed like almost like synchronized swimming 42nd street yeah, yeah. and then uh the last big scene in the musical where she uh twiggy goes to there's like a dance there's a ball like a carnival ball and she's dressed as um purette, purette. Yeah, this yeah, like clown. beautiful like clown, and it's just this like blue like landscape it's within this garden. Oh my god, she's so beautiful! It's so beautiful. Like, it's just absolutely stunning. Yes. So, <laughs> I think I'm going to be the outlier in a lot of this <laughs> discussion about Kim Russell. Really, just um, the first two movies we're going to talk about. Um, I love the visual style, but I think what I struggle with, and this was a perfect example of that is like, it is so crazy and obnoxious that it, I don't know the word for it, but it starts to go into like tedium, not boring. It's never boring, but there's something about it being so like dialed up to 11 for over. Like you become numb to it a little bit. It's like over two hours. We're like, 
about halfway in the movie, it's like, I'm exhausted. And like, it's sort of reminded, and I'm not a big musical person, but it almost was like hanging around theater kids who are <laughs> like, quite literally it is. Right. Yeah. right. Who are dialed up to 11 the whole time. And you're just like, man, get me out of here. Like, this is exhausting. <laughs> like I need to breathe. And that happens in this a lot. It also happened in the movie. I'm going to talk about listomania where that to me is why he's interesting. Like it's very exhilarating. And yet there's some, sometimes this lull of like tedium um, with how exhilarating it is. And I don't know how to like articulate that, you know. I think it can be overstimulating. Like if if you're stimulated at an 11 for like an hour, that, yeah, I, Brittany, like Brittany said, you can be, it can be numbing. Can I make a suggestion that maybe- I enjoy the numbness. He's not the best- <laughs> topic to use your usual treatment where you watch all of our movies for these episodes very close to recording yeah like if i had watched all of these in like a few days i would have been fucking numb I <laughs> oh i too. did and my adrenaline was so high really? yeah. like, I, I was like i want more you madman i love ken russell but i also love eating giant piles of candy but if i did it every day i'd get sick you know like there's like a, a treat an overwhelming quality to his work i actually found this one very lax though like the hippie quality of it is very unstructured. Uh, it was reminding me a lot of like, uh, you know, the coquettes. Yeah. Yeah. Like just these kind of hippies hanging around San Francisco and they were raiding the thrift stores of all the old gowns and stuff from like old Hollywood that people like didn't value anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of just traipsing around and like, aren't we beautiful? And like on LSD and just kind of like laying on top of each other and having weird sex and filming it. Like there's just this kind of like, unstructured play where they're like playing old Hollywood, but not actually putting together a concise quick show the way Busby Berkeley would have in the thirties. And I don't think this is a perfect movie. I don't, this is not my favorite era of Ken Russell stuff. We'll get to that later in this episode, but it is kind of a perfect movie for this season in that Mm, if you were going to throw on one of his movies for like carnival season, this is great movie to have on in the background while you're like, making costumes or you know sorting your throws and like doing little arts and crafts around the living room it's like um in hippie times there were art events just that were called happenings like this is a happening it's not like a movie that you like pay close attention to all the way through it's like an environment that you kind of hang out in for a couple of hours and i also had the same experience where i paused it halfway through to go to the bathroom like there's an hour left how (laughs) But I think, like, the sort of hangout vibe, like, everyone's stoned and not in a particular rush to get anywhere, it kind of works in its favor and against it in some ways. Like, paying close attention to it and trying to follow the story of this, like, love interest, will they, won't they thing. Yeah. Not really. It doesn't. It's not that important. And then, like, a a long-lost father and son. Right. That was so bizarre. But if you're, like... (laughs) Putting together your Mardi Gras costume and you glance up and you're like, I want to do my eye makeup like that. Like there's right. a new eye makeup look every 30 seconds. Yeah. And they're all gorgeous. It's so inspirational. And even uh, it's the, the jellyfish scene where they have these umbrellas with oh, tinsel yeah. like tentacles yeah, yeah, yeah. where I'm like, oh man, like there's 
it is a very Mardi Gras movie. Yeah. Yeah. And especially yeah. like um, a prolonged movie about a scrappy theater production that's like they're trying to get the attention of this director that has like graced them with their presence. They're all yeah. like like mugging to him. Just watching them kind of scraping everything together is very inspiring. It's a big game of dress up, you yeah. know? And that's kind of what Mardi Gras is. And like yeah. there's a fantasy to it where what's in your head does not actually match the reality of what you're actually achieving in the real world. Right. But as long as everyone buys into the fantasy, like you can transport yourself to this kind of like beautiful other realm uh, that we can all play around in. Yeah. I think the movie does that. It's just like, I'm not stoned enough to feel it the whole time. And I kind of wish my hands were busy instead of like, yeah, sitting down and watching it with a notebook, you know? Oh yeah. Like I wish I was in like a theater it's kind of like a rambunctious crowd. I can go out and smoke a cig and come back in and like not feel like I missed anything in the five minutes I was gone. You know, it's like a, it's a great background movie. I think. Okay, is that insulting? <laughs> no, I'm just like, like I'm trying to like. What okay. is wrong with me? Well, we we had an argument last episode where I was talking about how like visual art is like the main thing I'm looking for in movies, and this movie has plenty of that. Uh, it, it definitely like made me eat my words a little bit. In that like, <laughs> there is not a lot of like narrative drive to yeah. it. It's just like the excitement of waiting for the next set piece. That's and, and they keep delivering. Yes, I think that's like what kept me interested in it because like I was like cross stitching on the second watch of it and like yeah, I wish I was doing that. Yeah, <laughs> but it was sort of like a I don't know, it was like a creative boost or something. Yeah. Going to dinner, that's all. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be back. No matter what Amy says, I can't go back to that life. Not now. Well, maybe you better not come back here either. What's that supposed to mean? Maybe in a month or so, uh, you'll start feeling guilty about leaving the kids. Maybe I'll start feeling crowded and trapped. Maybe you'll start resenting my past, the time I put in on my work. You want a good meal? I can't cook. I don't want to learn. Why don't you just go, goddammit? So, Ken Russell did a couple of these music biographies, very, very loose biographies. Um, did Mahler, which I've seen. Uh, and in the same year that he also came out with Tommy, which is the Who's rock opera, uh, he came out with Listomania, which also stars uh, Peter Roger, D- Daltrey. Roger Daltrey, Daltrey from the Who. They had a good relationship. Did they? <laughs> Very, a very attractive man. His body is uh, very in shape. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point. And but, well, large, it is the point. But it is the sure. point. Actually, extremely, yeah, really is. extremely large uh, member, too, as we find out. As yeah. we do find in out. And this kind of goes to what we were just talking about with the really flamboyant, over-the-top style that he was at at this point in his career. Um, but this one has a lot more cocks in it. Um, <laughs> and a lot more sex. And I, I found it to be a lot funnier. Um, so it's loosely based on Franz Liszt, who is a Hungarian pianist uh, who was kind of like the rock star of his time where girls were just, you know, throwing themselves at yeah. him during concerts. The Elvis like, of composers. Or the right. Beatles, the <laughs> Beatles mania. Yeah. yeah. Beatlemania. And um, the film kind of, it's sort of a loose 
biographical thing, but it's really just kind of a series of sort of vin. I don't even want to call them vignettes or uh, it, it loosely follows his life, but it's really just an excuse for Ken Russell to do some like crazy sexual stuff on the screen, you know, including you have a scene with a giant, giant <laughs> cock. Paper mache. Yeah. Paper mache cock that gets guillotined. Okay, wait, wait, wait. The sequence is very involved. There's like this Russian empress. Mm-hmm. Russian that, empress, um, yeah. kind of brings him in as like, she's going to be his patron or whatever. And she does this like forced feminization fantasy where she makes him wear a dress and then makes him ride this giant cock and then cuts the end off of it. While these other women are like kind of worshiping around him. And then she dresses up with this giant bat dominatrix outfit. And just kind of fla- flaps her with wings these, like, a bunch. like upside down crosses hanging yeah. from it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe the most elaborate kink I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and it, I, I think the real life corollary is that he did have a relationship with this uh, Russian noble and she like wanted him to commit fully to composing and stop working as like a concert pianist. So it's like all of these things have a connection to something. He's really just capturing the essence of his story. Right. And yeah. and framing it in this like Beatlemania, which speaking of Beatlemania, there's a scene with the Pope played by Ringo Starr. Yes. <laughs> Great cameo. Very like funny. As we were watching, it's like, that's Ringo Starr, right? Like, I had to check. That's definitely Ringo Starr. And I don't know. In the beginning of the film, he's uh, caught in bed with this woman that he's teaching, and he gets into a duel with her High father. Hijinks ensue. Hijinks ensue. He ends up in a uh, getting strapped into a piano <laughs> while a train comes full speed and blows up, and there's the title card. And then I loved um, the scene right after where he's hanging around all these composers because he was apparently like very well regarded amongst the classical music scene and taught a lot of these guys. And you have Wagner in there who ends up being the grand villain, (laughs) a straight up Nazi vampire. Accurate in a way. Accurate in a way. He did definitely support the Nazi party and believed in German exceptionalism and all that. But by the end of this film, he's full on like zombified Frankenstein, <laughs> like Nazi vampire killing Jews in the street. It's like pretty wild. But he's defeated by the power of love and hippiedom. Yeah. And, it, you know, Liz comes down in this like spaceship with the women, <laughs> with the women that he's fucked. And, they and, shoot and a, his daughter. And his daughter. And his daughter. Yeah. And he shoots a laser right. and then they all kind of go into the afterlife together so this is just sort of a like describing this movie is just kind of like a word salad of, <laughs> like, of crazy bad shit stuff but this one it did work for me like just because of the added sexual stuff which we will get to more later on but just the amount of phallic symbols and also the costumes, like there's one robe he wears where it's like the piano. Yeah. The purple robe with the, yeah, with piano the keys. Oh. Yeah. Great stuff. So you know how there are like when you go to like a children's book section, it's like children's books to tell little kids about like composers mm-hmm. and historical figures. I feel like these biopics are like that for adults. Like yeah. if you don't want to deal with the boring biopic of like 
who like list was like you can watch this and like have an understanding of the impact yeah. and everything and it's fun it reminded me in some ways of the Boslerm and elvis thing yeah where it's like capture it's not about <laughs> right. pure biography like yeah. did it capture the essence of who this guy was i don't know like in some ways it did and it's filtered through this psychedelic mm-hmm. Beatlemania stuff and throughout the film there is like list music but with like pop uh vocals yeah. on top of it and one negative thing i will say is i think a lot of the music is not very good in this movie i don't like this era of the who anyway so like oh i, I just that but that <laughs> combining of like some of these uh list melodies with like him singing over it i i thought it was very unmemorable and pretty <laughs> cheesy but you know, it is what it is. I I enjoyed this one for the batshit nature of it. And also, like, maybe because it wasn't two and a half hours long. It was <laughs> a little easy to to yeah. digest and go along with the ride. And yeah, I, 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 I did enjoy it. I do want to say, after we watched this, I did have the thought that Boz Lerman is kind of like a poor man's Ken Russell. Yeah. Like, I wish that I could see Moulin Rouge directed by Ken Russell. That like, I think tracks. that would be bananas. Or, yeah. like, and also even The Great Gatsby would be interesting. Yeah, I loved this. I thought this movie was great. I mean, it, was, it wasn't perfect, but I thought it was, like, I loved how sexy it was. I liked it for the same reasons that I liked The Music Lovers. This is even more bananas and, like, surreal. And I actually loved... The music, like it was definitely cheesy, but like th- that main, I can't remember if it's called like love, s- season of love or like love of, season. Dude, but so I hate that I, song. <laughs> I, I like the, I knew that song because of The Sims. There's like a piece of that <laughs> wow. song that plays like when, when The Sims get married You're or kidding. like when they kiss or something. Yeah. So I knew that as a child. And then I realized it was like, <laughs> a piece of classical music. Mm. So then I had this like other relationship with it. So then seeing it like just cheesed up in this movie was <laughs> very funny to me. But yeah, it just like, just like the boyfriend it's towing that line of like, man, this is like crazy fun, but I need a nap. I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely stony baloney nonsense in the same way the boyfriend is like, this is his like hippie period. Um, and I'd, I'd say even the devils is kind of like numbing too, but uh, maybe more purposefully so, because uh, like that's about a particular kind of like religious mania that's supposed to wear you but, down. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that also has like rich like characters that yeah. have, and it's telling a more like linear plot, regular movie kind yeah. of story that these aren't. But uh, this one for me personally, I liked a little more than the boyfriend. You know, this reminds me of is like, uh, this was like around the time that like midnight movies were becoming a concept. Oh, so like okay. um, around this time is when Phantom of the Opera and not Phantom of the Opera, Fa- Phantom, Phantom of the, the Paradise, Paradise. Yeah. and Rocky Horror Picture Show were like traveling around the country and like touring college campuses and like encouraging people to come out at midnight and get stoned and have these like events where you would party. And this is like that genre of movie. Yeah. And, yeah. A, and made, I think, the same year as those two films. I would love to see a midnight showing of this. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you nod off for five minutes and miss what happened and your buddy like 
elbows you awake like you're not it doesn't gonna really matter you're, you're right back in the party you know what's <laughs> what this one did is like i'm like what time period are we in are we in one because like you go from <laughs> no. being in like you know list times of like when he was truly like a pianist and then all of a sudden there's like people in t-shirts right and I'm like, what What year is this? What's going on? And right. then there's these like decadent outfits that kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's just sort of like you, there's no sense of time. Yeah. I, lo- I absolutely love it. that. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, like, first of all, having watched other films by Ken Russell, I feel uh-huh. like he really does appreciate like, classical music and these artists uh, yeah. like he ha- he loves he seems to love art but also he loves just like base human instinct and sees the connection between those two so i love just the idea of taking that ecstatic mania around list during that time and like drawing it into like like this is the equivalent of, of the insanity that we have in the 60s and the 70s like yeah like i people were just as base back then as they are now and i'm gonna show everybody i what they were doing love that sequence of the squealing teenage girls right. all dressed exactly the same <laughs> and wagner is like desperate for at least to perform his music so he starts playing this like complicated Wagner piece mm-hmm. um, and the kids are so bored <laughs> and they start chanting chopsticks, chopsticks, yes. chopsticks. chopsticks. And then he starts wavering back and forth mm-hmm. between playing a few bars of chopsticks and they're like freaking the fuck out, yeah. like tearing out the furniture and trying to storm the stage and then going back to the Wagner piece and they're like, Oh, <laughs> and, uh, just kind of sinking in their seats. Yeah. Uh, that whole sequence is very funny and like yeah. a very, playful introduction to what he's doing with this piece like the way he's like okay this is a modern form of like rock and roll fandom that everyone can recognize um i'm gonna move that to this older context yeah and you're gonna instantly understand what i'm going for right and then once he gets you on that page then he's just allowed to do whatever he wants which is kind of the ken russell specialty is like trying to find a hook and an excuse to just torch money on screen and like you know follow every dumb whim he has for as long as he is entertained by it yeah i think it's like he's trying to show us his what his like daydreams are of like like i don't know like sometimes if i'll read something and i'm like huh i wonder what that would look like yeah and you kind of like have this weird vision you can't explain i feel like he was able to explain it through stuff like this does that make gothic? sense? I don't know if that makes sense. What I said. We've never talked about gothic before. Oh yeah, gothic. That's another good one. That's, that's like the only way it really been stresses mentioned. Stresses me like, out. That's um, Mary, Mary Shelley, Shelley? Yeah. Yeah. Byron, exactly. and, um, mm-hmm. Percy are like tripping on like laudanum or whatever. Right. Dear God, uh, yeah. That's like the night she invented Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, but it has the same setup where it's like uh, these modern tourists are looking at the castle where they did that. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of goes off into the fantasy of like what that sweaty, weird night of them having bisexual sex on drugs <laughs> yeah. was like. Yeah, so much sweat. Yeah. yeah, very sweaty movie. I feel like there's so many period pieces that are so like proper and they'll maybe they'll have like <laughs> yeah. some interludes into sex, but they always have this like air of propriety around that time and he is just like bringing the guttural essence of humanity back in time yeah. for us to witness. I think it's wonderful. 
And this one in particular is a celebration of like the himbo archetype and like yeah, all these political things are happening around Least and he's just not participating because he's kind of just like a party boy. And yeah, so like the movie kind of has to be base and dumb and like naive because that's what the subject is. Yeah. Uh, which allows Russell to like make as many dumb sex jokes as he wants because <laughs> uh, that's what Franz would have wanted. Right. Beautiful. I think. Ken Russell hit his real stride where I think of him as like one of my favorite directors in the 1980s. My favorite run of his movies are from Altered States, maybe through Crimes of Passion. And I'm also thinking of um, Layer the White Worm is one we're not talking oh, about yeah. today. But I think once he got past his like money torching hippie era, he kind of had to calm it down a little bit. Like, I think the financial failure of the devils and like the soft censor- censorship of that movie kind of threw his career for a loop. And in the eighties in particular, he discovered video art as like a new medium and a cheap way to, f- to create these like psychedelic images for the screen. Um, and particularly in 1980 uh, altered States, he just goes wild with this like new technology in a way that I think is a brilliant breakthrough in his art. Um, This movie stars William Hurt as this man who is experimenting with sensory deprivation tanks where he's like trying to meditate in these tanks and like achieve a different form of consciousness than the waking mind. And then he discovers that drugs really accelerate this process and starts taking like ayahuasca type drugs and LSD in these sensory deprivation tanks and um, eventually transcends the human form not in the way you would think not in a progressive way instead he devolves to the original self and becomes more of a monkey man uh, <laughs> in these tanks where like um he starts deconstituting quote unquote and his body starts reverting back to these primal um primate states while he's in the tank and he's trying to convince the other scientists around him to like study his body as soon as he gets out before he reconstitutes. And what the audience sees that the other scientists don't see is that he actually is turning into a monkey man (laughs) and like running wild around the city, uh, eating goats and uh, terrorizing zoo animals. I love how he immediately finds the zoo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it becomes this kind of like Cronenbergian body horror where like he's gone too far into the research. So his body, um, starts mutating and like warping in ways that like if you've ever looked at your hand or your arm while you're on psychedelics you're like why is my skin undulating like that like that's mm-hmm. not right um, but he's like physically doing that and in his trippier moments in the tank and in his nightmares where he's tormented by memories of his father and like religious upbringing and stuff like that uh, Ken Russell just goes apeshit with the video art technology, the sort of like green screen collage. Um, there's this gorgeous image of uh, Christ with a goat's head. Um, a lot of like weird sand dune yeah. backdrops with these like harsh flower images sort of superimposed on top of it. It's all collage style in that all the proportions are wrong. It's psychedelic in a more menacing way than like The Boyfriend or Listomania is. This is not like a fun sort of trippy movie. It's like very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And 
It's also upsetting in that have you ever been in a room with an academic who only thinks about their research and just talks oh about God, themselves that... and their work for hours and hours at a time? And this <laughs> yeah. is how I feel, honestly, whenever I like try to talk about a movie. Like my brain is on fire and I can't stop the words from coming out. <laughs> he just does that to everyone around him for hours at a time to the point where like no one else has any room to interject and everyone just sort of leaves him. Um eventually like he falls in love with the woman or she falls in love with him and she eventually can't stand hearing his mouth anymore just like leaves and that only leaves him alone with the research to go further and further into this monkey man uh persona that he's uh pulling out of the tank and eventually the uh, she comes back and saves him not a very like it's kind of a thankless role for the wife character but uh I really love watching this man de-evolve. And uh, this yeah. has been a, co- a favorite since college, I think. Uh, and I, I still find great value in it every this, time yeah. I visit. This is like a quintessential college movie for me. You know, it's you a little to, Kubrick. It's a little Cronenberg, you know? But, but you know, you were talking about like, you know, kind of drive through movies where yeah. kids will like get snow. To me, this is a like first year of college. You maybe drop some acid, like high school senior and you discover this movie, you're like, guys, you got to come over. We got to get stoned and watch Altered States. Oh, God, I would throw up if I ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like this like discovery of like, oh, this is cool, trippy art. Yeah. And I want to share it with my friends. Like, mm-hmm. that's what this movie meant to me. I'm not taking psychedelics in this like narcissistic way. I'm actually doing important research about <laughs> well, the human mind. And, 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 I, and I think that's the part watching it that kind of made me cringe is like, when I watched it when I was younger, I gave no thought to that aspect of it. I was just wrapped up in the visuals uh, and the monkey man de-evolution. But watching it now, I was just like, this William Hurt character is fucking insufferable. That's why everyone leaves him, though. He's a madman. People know that. But then he gets like, all these people love him. Why? He's like, what, because he's brilliant? They Because they don't leave him. Like, she... His wife does not want to divorce him. He wants to divorce her because he wants to, like, be unattached from other people. And he wants to, like, he doesn't want to be bogged down in suburbia. Like, there is this cult of, like, love and appreciation for his genius. And it's, it's like he's making himself sicker and sicker and everybody is worried about him. That's a, I hear that. A good point because I'm like, why isn't his wife more pissed off? Right, at him? leave this clown. <laughs> but I think it's like he, he or she says like, oh, he, she's in love with me 100. Like, there's yeah. something about like watching that as like a freshman in college and sort of not the fact that I didn't even think about that aspect of yeah. his character where I just sort of accepted like that that type of person. Not that that's who I would want to emulate, but that. He wasn't a bad guy, and now looking at him, like he's a bad guy. Is like, he committed? There's something about like the horrible? like 18 year old stoner, yeah, watching that where it's like, yeah, this is cool. These the heart of the story is like this man. But I think the kind movie of a knows monster. that though. Like, yes, there, there's yeah. a scene where he tries the ayahuasca type drug. I'm not sure exactly what kind of mushroom mixture he puts his blood in, and uh, this tribe like feeds yeah. to him. But they give him this like morality test where they leave him alone in a cave with this like lizard that's like pretty harmless and the test is like can you have this meeting with the ultimate god inside your own brain and not react violently to the experience and he comes to and he has killed the lizard like he's like a bad dude yes um and i'd say that 
a little bit of it is also softened in that all of the academics around him do constant lectures and can't stop. So like there's this really horrific scene where nothing bad's happening except all these academics are having the sit down dinner and sharing bottles of wine. And they're all talking rapidly about their theses yeah. uh, on yeah. top of each other. It's like multiple lectures layered. Um, and then all the people in the room kind of slowly stop and listen to William Hurt because he is giving the most insane lecture of all. <laughs> like, wait, what is this guy saying? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, there is like a goofy aspect to the, their relationship where he does that all of the time. And the, wife character will just be like you're fascinating yeah which is very funny like the sort of um cliche about like a man going on a first date and only talking about himself the whole time like he is (laughs) that guy totally uh but the work is interesting and uh, the proof's in the pudding he does like achieve something with it (laughs) but i do think (laughs) he kind of becomes the universe (laughs) but I, i do think it's also not just him but about scientists in general how you use science to kind of Feel your own ego, yeah. You know, to pursue your own things in the pursuit of science, right? You or know, it, yeah, like academics. Yeah, and academics general. do like it. Kind of reminds me. I was been watching some like Neil deGrasse Tyson stuff lately, and like how insufferable he actually comes across. Like, and again, at when I watched him years ago, I was like, this guy is brilliant. He really has some ideas about the universe, and you watch, and I was like, "This guy is just talking out of his own ass," and like he <laughs> is just totally like an egomaniac, and that's sort of what I felt about this. All the characters in this, like, they're all academics that are up their own ass. I had the same experience as James, where I had a completely different takeaway watching this the second time like the first time it was like man this is so crazy and look at the the monkey man running around the monkey and then man is silly i love the monkey man. Yeah. it's so fucking <laughs> and silly and then the like and then the like the whirlpool of like the nebulous uh, like primordial cool. goo no it, it is all it that is stuff cool. is cool but but like watching it again it's like this guy has like serious deep-seated personal like griefs and and traumas that he's trying to process in a way that is like elevated by like seeking a higher truth through drugs yeah and he's using these psychedelics in a way that they're not meant to be used like in the you know in the beginning with the this tribe in mexico they're like collecting mushrooms for the next year so they're not like using this stuff every day in an isolation tank right like they have a they have they understand how to use it responsibly and he's just like punching it into his body and then spending four hours in an isolation tank it's like he becomes abusive of it right and like at the beginning it's like i have this theory oh my god i want everyone to like see that this is real and then it turns into i've never felt this great in my life and he it becomes more of like a personal thing like he's getting a personal thing from it. it's no longer about like his res- like research yeah. and, anymore but at the end like he does like he's seeking this higher truth and like this is going to be a a breakthrough for for science for humanity we're going to touch something we've never touched before and he does do that but like and i'm all for psychedelics like i have no problem with them but like reaching uh, pushing yourself to a different state of consciousness it is not always necessarily a good thing for you. And he that's it's like his realization is 
Like, there is nothing at the nexus of begin. Like, I didn't find an answer. Like, the answer is that there is no answer and that, like, living on this earth is the only thing that Which I is what everyone on. who's ever tried psychedelics eventually learns is like, right. oh, yeah, I just, like, have a very short time on earth. I should probably just be nice to yeah, the people around me. Yeah, just appreciate all of the beautiful, <laughs> yeah. wonderful things. But it also rang true in the sense of, like, when you first do psychedelics, you're trying to reach some higher truth. And then at some point, you kind of realize, like, I really just like being high. <laughs> like, I, I just, like, I really, to be kind of sober-minded and just realize, like, a short yeah. period of time on this earth is, like, what the challenge is. Yeah. You but know, it, drugs offer an escape. Or it offers, like, it allows you a moment of or a period of clarity to like really see the things that are on the earth and like, Oh my God, look at this blade of grass. This is beautiful. Look at this person. You know, it's not like I'm escaping reality to a different place. It's like allowing you to be fully present in the place that you're in and like, soak yeah, up. But a lot of people I knew that took a bunch of acid, it got to a point where they weren't more enlightened. They just like right. being really high. Yeah. You know, you only get so much out of this stuff. To be fair, the researcher this is based off of was, like, early in the use of this kind of drug. Like, this is, like, early experimentation with what these drugs can do. And he was, like, pushing that even further with this, like, combined research with with the sensory deprivation tank. So... There's something different about someone doing this in a university setting in the 1960s versus, like, the dirtbag in the dorm room doing this in the 2000s, you know, which will, is what we would have encountered. I will say, just as an aside, I have been in a sensory deprivation thing. I did it when I went to Dallas a few years ago, and it's pretty intense. Yeah. not not I'm like scared on, to do it. Not on drugs or anything, but you basically get in this, like, completely dark tank it's like 97% salt water. So, and the temperature of the water is matches your body heat. So you just kind of melt into the water and you're naked and it's quiet and you can hear your, not only your heartbeat, but kind of your brain working. It's weird. Like when you're in dead silence like that and you're in there for an hour and then you just slowly melt into the water and, there's just stillness and Mm -hmm. it's pretty, I can't imagine doing that on mushrooms or acid or whatever, but it's a pretty intense experience that I would recommend for anyone that has access to it. Just as an aside. And if you have ayahuasca, it's only going <laughs> to be Or just that. do ayahuasca. Is it easy to get out of if you start freaking out? Are you like locked in there, like going Final Destination? No, they, there's just a it, there's a door. You just yeah. can open a door and get oh, out. Oh, it's not like a tanning bed type thing. No, no, no. It's, it's enough to like kind of spread your okay. limbs out comfortably. But there is a panic button and there is just like a door you can. Yeah, right. They lock you in. And you're in a soundproof room. So, no. And it takes two people to open <laughs> right. the door. And, and sometimes have... the light of God himself <laughs> scared right. to do confronts it. you. They only have one attendant at a time. I do think the original author that was adapting his own book into the screenplay took this stuff more seriously than Ken Russell did. Um, and this movie had like a famously hard time getting made because that guy was very protective of the work. Mm. And uh, Ken Russell... <laughs> His approach to um, getting around that was just bullying this man mercilessly <laughs> and kicking him off the set. 
um, and basically just taking over the project. And I think accentuating how overly verbose the dialogue was and having these men read their academic oh, jargon at yeah. fast machine gun rhythms um, to sort of accentuate how abrasive they were. Because his movies are pretty, like, caustic. Like, it, it is numbing in the same way that all the hippie bullshit in the early movies we were talking about is numbing and that it's just constant barrage of words from these men yeah. who are, like, too smart for their own good. So I think he's lightly mocking the academia of it. Yeah. And then also just using it as an excuse to play around with form, which is where this movie really sings for me. Like the video art psychedelia of this is like maybe some of his best visual work. He really like pushes the art form to new places in that he has fewer resources than he did 10 years ago when he was making like stuff like The Boyfriend. Um, but he's using the budget for as, as much as he could possibly yeah. squeeze out of it. Yeah, that primordial vortex sequence is just great. The yeah. like flashing of like cells separating, which like links to the Big Bang, like universes being created is like <laughs> really beautiful stuff. And his work got even cheaper the further we got into the <laughs> 80s, which is where we'll end up today. That's right. Um, ending with Crimes of Passion, which was directed in 1984, starring Kathleen Turner, Anthony Perkins, and John uh, Laughlin. And I've been trying to see this movie for like three years. Um, in my head, it was like very much in the realm of like Brian De Palma and also Cruising. Like I just kind of wanted to round out the erotic thrillers canon. And uh, so this stars Kathleen Turner as uh, Joanna Crane, who is a um, divorced fashion designer uh, by day. By night, she is a <laughs> prostitute named um, China Blue. So there is this uh, kind of suburban family man named uh, Bobby Grady, who works at like an electronics store that he owns. And then he also does surveillance work. So he's hired by Joanna's boss to follow her because uh, he thinks that she is um, like leaking designs to a competing like fashion design firm. So he follows her. He discovers that she is moonlighting as China Blue and he becomes kind of fascinated by her. Uh, and seeks out her services, and then, like, he knows who she really is. He seeks her out in real life and kind of, like, breaks that barrier. Uh, he's in an unhappy marriage, kind of, like, sexless. Uh, he's he's trying to, like, reforge their connection, but it's not really working, so he's reaching out to China Blue as, like, this, um, like, he has real sexual chemistry with her, so he's he's kind of... Uh, experimenting with something there and then she's also being pursued by Anthony Perkins who plays this deranged curb preacher who is also like frequents the uh, like peep show like prostitution house that she works in he has these like really violent fantasies um, so he's like battling this repressed like these repressed violent sexual urges with this um like sanctimonious attitude he like thinks that he's gonna save her and um she kind of humors his fantasies because that's what she does for everybody she is like 
by night, like, fulfilling the fantasies of all of these men that she's servicing. And she really does seem to have, like, a relationship with them, even though she keeps herself very much distanced from them. So this is, like, a absolutely beautiful, like, lurid, neon production. But it, I, I think it had, it was more emotional than I expected. It wasn't, it was definitely cheap. But it didn't feel as like caustic as I thought it would. Like each character is dealing with this like discontent or unhappiness, and they have this fantasy that is keeping them from like really like grappling with that discontent. Like she, China Blue, is this um, divorced woman who kind of hates men based on what her boss says, but by night she's like fulfilling the fantasies of all these men and has kind of good relationships with them. And she's allows herself to stay in this unhappiness through this kind of like uh relationship with herself. And then uh Bobby Grady has this fantasy of like continuing his marriage, like this suburban, um the suburban fantasy that's like not really possible. Like his wife, doesn't love him anymore and then the preacher too is like it's like he allows himself to have these sexual urges by pretending that he is like this sanctimonious person but it it's like it tortures everybody like everybody is kind of struggling yeah i saw it as a little more cynical maybe in that it's like an anti-monogamy movie yeah and that anytime like two characters pair off it's like always the worst decision to make yeah like uh she she calls out early in the movie like why ruin a perfect relationship you pay me i have sex with you like this is the, yeah. the perfect heterosexual relationship um and i think the movie somewhat believes that in some ways because there's this um, constant music video interjection of the song "It's a Happy Life" mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that song. is just making fun of the concept of marriage, <laughs> and is referenced in the score every twenty seconds throughout the <laughs> yes. entire movie. Like there's even there's a motif. Like she's walking, and it's like it's so great. And I think in the era of mass divorce like i feel like growing up in the 80s and 90s in particular like every couple was being divorced this is like a very cynical divorce movie yeah but it's also one of my favorite movies ever made like this is like my top 10 films by any director yeah and i think what's brilliant about it is like those erotic thrillers that this was participating in or like piggybacking off of are all these like war of the sexes movies it's very like Men are from Mars, women are from Venus conflicts. Uh, this movie is super cynical about those clashes between men and women and plays with sexual violence in a way that like is consensual most of the time. Yeah. Until Anthony Perkins crosses a couple lines. Um, I would I would even say Bobby and Anthony Perkins have like the same like invasion of China Blue's private space. Yeah. In a way that they're equated. Like the way they keep barging in on her. Yeah. Is pretty equal. Leave her alone. I thought it was I I thought that was so invasive. That yeah. that he comes to her like it's it's like th- this is knowledge that he should not have. And it, it is a violation of her like maintaining her identity. And I like that him trying to make a monogamous pairing out of this transactional sex is the transgression that throws the whole balance of the movie off and mm-hmm. ends in bloodshed. Is like, 
everything would have been fine if he just like paid for sex and they like yeah. continued their relationship as it was. But because he has such a suburban, like we need to get married mindset, like it ruins everything as the movie goes along. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie does end on a cheeky joke where they're together. But I, even that I don't think is going to end well. Like he's just, she's going to yeah. end up just as disappointed as Annie Potts. Yeah. Was He'll get bored. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that I like, I think that the like anti-monogamy was like very liberating like i don't think that it's necessarily i don't think it's good that they ended up together but i do feel like the melting core that i saw for her was there's this scene where she goes to have sex with this man who's dying and like she is kind of propositioned by his wife so then they drive to their house and and she goes and she like tries to seduce him and she's like she's kind of presenting these what she thinks he wants to hear like oh my god i can't wait to have sex with you and like and he is just not fooled at all like i you don't have to do that like i i know what's happening like he has fully reckoned with the reality of the rest of his life and like i am dying there's no getting around it and that's the only moment where she like reveals herself to another person like there is something about fantasy that allows us to continue our lives in a way that that we're unhappy with essentially so i think that like marriage is not like marriage is another fantasy and it's not possible for a lot of people but like there is something I love about this movie, like about how wonderful fantasy is and how also like at some point you need to realistically grapple with your life. Yeah. And I think the Annie Potts character could have been like this like shrew that the movie kind of pushes to the side. Mm-hmm. But she also gets like genuine melodrama moments like yeah. that too, where like the traditional marriage structure where like. In high school, she ha- she marries the first person she wants to have sex with, like the mm-hmm. high school quarterback. Yeah, um, kind of like sets the rest of her life in stone. And then, like by the time you hit your thirties, you're like, oh, I wasn't fully ready to make a f- commitment mm-hmm. at seventeen years old about what I was going to do for the rest of my days. Like th- that character is not a punchline, really. It's like the marriage is a problem because it was built on this like faulty structure, right? I like that that stuff was taken sincerely, and there are like tender moments, especially the the old man John. Um, but also that there's the stuff with Anthony Perkins. Yeah, uh, <laughs> what? he's got which a is basket, so over the top, a bag full of dildos. <laughs> yeah, and sex I, toys. His his character is always a highlight when I watch this. Um, I know that the devils, you know, there's a famous thing with Roger Eber where he hated the devils because it fucked with his like Catholicism, and like. I think this movie does a even a better job of being really cynical towards religion. Yeah. And like this Anthony Perk and you're talking about like fantasy and it's like the fantasy that you have moral superiority yeah. over other people, but you're really hiding your own desires that aren't being met. And it was like going to like a Catholic high school and being asked by a priest, like, have you masturbated? Like, you know, masturbation's a sin. It's like, you're trying to say you're above this, but really, like, you have those same desires, too, and they're probably eating you up on the inside. And, like, I feel like this movie really skewers religion in that way. And this Anthony Perkins character is just the most maddening version 
of that just like untap sexual desires that lead to like violence and uh i don't know i think his performance is a highlight i mean he's really pushing that norman bates archetype to a whole yeah. new feverish level yeah uh, just snorting amyl nitrate every couple yeah. of lines and <laughs> right sweating he's it all so out sweaty yeah. yeah yeah and he went on to direct psycho 3 after this and have you ever like seen that movie which it, is great it's really great it, it, he like uses a lot of the same pink and blue cross lighting that ken mm-hmm. russell uses Ugh. here and um, brings like the crimes of passion energy into the Psycho series in a way that's very interesting. Um, I I don't think he quite has the full force of Ken Russell's talents, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I would have loved to see Anthony Perkins keep directing more movies after uh, he made Psycho Three because he was really onto something uh, around this time. But I I would agree with Brandon that this is probably my personal favorite too of yeah. the Ken Russells because um, it has. Yeah, it has the bombasticness, but also has like something to say, and it has like well thought out characters, and it's funny as fuck, <laughs> and it's visually stunning. Like it just everything that he can do, and it has like a heart to it. Yeah, that like you know something like Listomania is like crazy batshit, but is lacking maybe some of the. I hate to say depth or whatever that this has, but this has it all for me. And this is like this and the devils and layer of the white worm are probably my, my top three from him. Yeah. Also, I'd only ever, I think the first thing I ever saw Kathleen Turner in was body heat. I need to see that. How have I not seen that? It's so (laughs) good. I love her too. Right now. It's the sweatiest movie I've ever seen. It's It's very sweaty. There's like ice cubes running up and down yeah, bodies in that so movie. Good. Who's her co-star in that? William Hurt. I was thinking that. Yeah, that's great. which is yeah. great. Yeah. Um, but so she's just like so such a cool like femme fatale in that yeah. movie, and she is like so wild in this film, just like lashing out whenever she needs to. Like I thought that she was fantastic as Joanna Crane and as China Blue. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ken russell movies too and she's probably my favorite character out of all of his films because she's so fucking cool like she's sort of she kind of has it all until these two pests come into her life (laughs) yeah they ruin everything for her like she gets to do all this cool shit at night and this different persona get a bunch of money and like becomes this very cool character with this iconic silky blue dress. Yeah. And then during the day, she's a fucking like fashion designer with a fabulous career. I'm like, God, you really can have it all. <laughs> it's almost like a comic book character to have like a fashion design job. Totally. It feels like a yeah. superhero yeah. a little bit. Like speaking of comic book character, like this sort of like Superman yeah, situation going on, just way sexier. Uh, we should talk about Superman for a second, which is the name right. of the uh, dildo that Anthony Perkins oh, yeah. wants to stab her to death with. Dear God, <laughs> which is this uh, vibrating chrome dildo that has a sharpened end Very to it. Very knife and heart. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking of Peeping Tom too. That oh, like yeah. camera too. rig. I was thinking one. of uh, Seven also. Oh, oh I haven't seen God. that in so long. Yeah. What's the death oh, instrument it, in that? It's just, well, it's just a knife, really. Oh, okay. you, for Lust, they just, yeah, it's oh. it's bad. I remember um, Gluttony the most. In yeah, that movie. Oh, that's memorable. That's a, that's a striking image. Yeah. But the Ew. scene with him where he kills uh, the sex worker and then it cuts to like the blow up. <laughs> yeah. Doll, like, Wild. Covered oh, in God. blood. That really 
disturbed me. I yeah. And it, weren't there like quite a few cuts they had to make to this movie to yeah, it because it was X, X? it was X rated and and it wasn't going to be released unless they got it rated R. So they I made more cuts. Than- and I, I think there was a scene where she takes a policeman home and something with the nightstick. That that happens, that happens in the movie. In, yeah, no, but the- I think they cut. Um, her heels are like grinding into dress. his calves. They cut some of yeah. that to get it down. They might have to- cut the moment of penetration, but she is definitely riding a police officer while yeah. grinding a nightstick into his anus. Right. And then famous police brutality images throughout Im- uh, history are flashing <laughs> on the screen. Right. While yeah. very generic hardcore punk plays in the soundtrack. <laughs> Uh, yeah. great stuff That's very cinema. funny and upsetting yeah. like this movie actually does shock and upset me every time I watch it yeah yeah. Um, and, and we touched on it a little bit but I think it's is it Rick Alterman that did the, the iconic it's a lovely life song oh my god that that whole scene where it's like a music video in the movie of this mm. like couple getting married and then this like little kid screaming yes. by a birdcage where yes. it's like and the swimming pool where in the swimming pool or yeah. something like that in the pool this would have been the height of MTV too so like it makes sense <laughs> yeah. that he would be playing with that right which is his whole um the joy that he got out of directing music videos I'm like here you go you sick fuck you put this bizarre video in a damn movie it's I amazing think, uh, Derek Jarman started as like a costume or set designer mm-hmm. on the Devils for Ken Russell and then went into his own music video work uh, before he started making his experimental art films as well. And Derek Jarman is a very great director if you like Ken Russell's like production design. Like yeah. Derek Jarman does his own sort of Ooh. like overly styled pieces that are like abstract works as well. Yeah. I also loved, I loved the cuts to like fine art about sex. That was yeah. great. Uh, lots of like the wood wood cuts, like Japanese wood blocks yeah. of like pornography, and then, like the kiss, yeah, from um Clint. Clint- oh my god, <laughs> yeah. Also, one of my favorite, like, uh, Joanna Crane has these three prints by Aubrey Beardsley in her house, and uh, one of fan? them is of uh, Salary? like, yeah, cool, which I loved. It's just like so. All of those like little itches were scratched as well like and i think he does that consistently like he loves fine art and he loves like trash and those things are not on opposite sides of a binary like they are connected like and i just like love his like drawing of those two things together is it too much of a hot take to say that like a lot of directors do their best work when they have constrictions like, I feel like in this 80s period, he has the most influence from studios telling him what he can and can't yeah. do. Where, like, by the time he was making The Boyfriend and The Devils and things like that, he was just really, like, yeah. running wild and able to just do whatever. And I feel like his work got really strong in the 80s because he was trying to make more commercial work and still sneak in his his yeah. personal indulgences. And I, especially in this era right now and like, the streaming stuff where you have, like, Scorsese making these three-hour movies that aren't in a particular rush to like make their point. Like I kind of miss the sort of rapid-fire young energy of like a Goodfellas or something like that. And yeah. I feel that with Ken Russell too. Like I, I feel like I love how overindulgent he is and how lurid his work is. But I think having him struggle against these constrictions like actually made for better work in this yeah. period. I feel like that's. I don't feel like that's a hot take at all. I feel like that a lot of artists make like. 
I mean, it forces you to be creative. I think having no reins can allow infinite creativity, but it can kind of like run wild. It's like that creativity becomes more like meaningful because you have to like sneak it in at the right moment. Yeah, you have to yeah. fight for what you believe it's really, in. Right. Yeah. right. It feels more thoughtful. But I think what you're supposed to say as like a film nerd is like, oh, I want the auteur to have full control and like the money men don't know what they're talking about. And it's not like I actually agree with like the decisions that would make his work more commercial. It's more just like I need him to like hone his ideas by fighting against an outside force a little bit. And these movies in the 80s are a little more narrative and a little more cohesive than something like Listomania, which is kind of like all over the place. But I think it makes for stronger art because he's like really trying to push his weirdo shit in the middle of those works. Right. And that contrast makes for like, I don't know, just really strong work. I, I think in the 80s, he like really hit a stride. Hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes if you don't, if you don't have anything to fight against, you don't feel the need to f- fight for anything in particular. It's like if, if you're going to tell me I can't do X, Y, and Z and, and those things are important to me, I'm going to find a way to put that in the work that I'm making. Well, his fight is over now. He, he's a dead man. <laughs> uh, I wish he was still going. What would like a you know eighty year old right. Ken Russell production look like? We can just figure out what that ritual was that uh, Cosima does in Listomania <laughs> and bring him back. Ooh. Bring him back. Yeah, or have someone do a Ken Russell style Ken Russell biopic. <laughs> I would like. Who's wacky that. enough Who to do it? do it? Yeah. Ari Aster, I guess. Oh, I don't know. Yes. But like Bo's Afraid, like Absolutely. kind of sprawling comedy. That yeah. was who I thought of when you were talking about resources. And like, I think Ari Aster having too many resources is not necessarily a good thing. But yeah. I think Ari Aster could absolutely do a Ken Russell biopic. I'm scared to say Boz Lerman could maybe take Boz a crack Lerman, at it. Yeah. <laughs> I really did not like Elvis, but I <laughs> thought it was fascinating. I mean, uh, I would end up watching the movie. I don't know if it would be any good. Yeah. Well, we will talk about Kathleen Turner again the next time all of us are in a room for a different topic. I'm going to leave it there for now. Hell yeah. Because this episode's very long already. Uh, we've <laughs> overindulged ourselves. No <laughs> producers in our ears telling us to wrap it up. <laughs> Happy Mardi Gras, everybody. Happy Mardi Gras.